you open your Bibles to the prophet Joel? It's, um, if that's unfamiliar to you, take heart. Um, you know, we aren't as familiar as we should be with the major prophets, let alone the, the minor ones, but we're doing a New Year's series uh, on, in the, the book of Joel. While you're turning there, let me thank uh, those of you, especially our, our deacons and our women's ministry, for helping us host the Presbytery, uh, Blue Ridge Presbytery met yesterday, and uh, that's the smell in the room. Don't, don't worry about it. Uh, it's, okay. uh, it's a good guy, a good group of men who we come together and, uh, you know, have exams and debate, you know, different things going on in the life of the regional church. Um, and we've talked about some of that in our polity and identity class. Hey, we're also um, getting ready as a church to celebrate 20 years that, since God planted Tabernacle. And we're excited about that. We want to make the most of that weekend in March 11th and the 13th. So part of what we're anticipating is being able to share some stories, testimonies of how God's been at work in your lives uh, as a result of his presence here at Tabernacle. So um, we need your help with that. Uh, we would love to, to hear from you, your stories, your testimonies. Uh, it could be a paragraph, a couple of paragraphs, no more than a page. Uh, send that in this week. We're uh, we, the deadline is supposed to be today. We're extending that because we're not hearing from you, which tells me one of two things. Either God's not doing anything in your lives and we should just all pack up and you know, stop fooling ourselves. Or you're sitting there thinking, I don't know. It doesn't feel like much. You know, other people can write better or tell this better. You know, so what about other people? We, we want to hear from you. Uh, send in like a paragraph or two. What has God shown you about his goodness, his glory, his holiness, his mercy, his, his love since you've, you've been here at Tabernacle? And please uh, share that with us. We might share your story uh, that weekend. If we want to, we will ask permission first, I promise. So no worries. But send that in uh, this week would be great. All right, uh, let's, let's read Joel chapter 2. I'm going to uh, read verses 1 through 11. This is more uh, follow-up from chapter 1 where we're reading about this uh, locust plague uh, that is befalling uh, God's people. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. 
The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your words, even when they're very sobering, uh, can be hard to hear. And yet we want to take them to heart because they come from your heart, a heart of love, of holy love, who has made a way for us to be your people through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so yeah, those so sobering words, kind of a graphic description. Um, let, me, let me switch gears just for a moment and tell you about when our kids were little, and um, this was even before Lydia was born, so Rachel and Michael and Sarah, we would have like read alouds, you know, before bed, you know, get together and read uh, Chronicles of Narnia or, you know, The Hobbit or um, Boxcar Children or Magic Treehouse or, you know, of course you got to read, you know, the Little House series too, right? So, uh, there was a stretch where we were reading, you know, Little House in the Big Woods, and then, you know, second book is on the banks of Plum Creek. So they started off in, in the woods. It didn't start on the Little House on the Prairie. That's later on, after they've moved west. But before they get to the Little House on the Prairie, they're in the little grass dugout on the banks of, of Plum Creek. And it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. They're in Minnesota. They're part of that uh, wagon train that's gone west um, with the, the rest of the pioneers. And Pa, uh, Charles Ingalls, Laura Ingalls Wilder's dad, has this, um, has heard that you, there's tons of land, it's fertile, uh, you can really make your fortune out west. Uh, plant some wheat, start over, you know, raise the family and so on. And, and things are going wonderful. I mean, they're on the banks of Plum Creek. And of course, there's there's wild flowers and all the, the plums you can eat and they're picking plums and they're drying plums and getting ready for winter. And they've built a new house. It's this beautiful, you know, pine boards. And it's the biggest house Laura's ever seen. And um, Pa's been in the field plowing this beautiful, rich, dark soil and the grasslands. And, you know, that, that, that plot gets bigger and bigger each week. And more hay, more wheat can be, can be planted. And, um, you know, basically they get to the, near the end of the summer and we pick up where Pa's coming in, it's dinner time, he's just been out inspecting the wheat and he says that the wheat was almost ready to cut. And the plump grains were getting harder in their little husks. And Pa said the weather was perfect for ripening wheat. At the dinner table, Pa told Ma all about it. He had never seen such a crop. There were 40 bushels to the acre, and wheat was a dollar a bushel. They were rich now, and this was a wonderful country, and now they could have anything they wanted. Pause for foreboding effect. <laughs> because... You know something's coming when you've got chapters like, with this title, uh, Grasshopper Weather. <laughs> the, the grasshoppers are coming. 
right? The locusts are coming. Let me, let me read to you what happens there. Um, so about, you know, a day later, or, you know, whatever, a couple of days pass, and the cloud is on the horizon. A cloud was over <clears throat> the sun. It was not like any cloud they had seen before. It was a cloud of something like snowflakes, but they were larger than snowflakes and thin and glittering. Light shone through each flickering particle, but there was no wind, and yet the cloud is, is advancing. Plunk. Uh, something hit Laura's head and fell to the ground. She looked down and saw the biggest grasshopper she'd ever seen. Then huge brown grasshoppers were hitting the ground all around her and hitting her head and her face and her arms, and they came thudding down like hail. And the cloud was hailing grasshoppers. The cloud was grasshoppers. I want you to imagine the daily family of five at this point. You know, Lydia wasn't born yet. We're all in, the, in, in bed and we're reading this. And it's just, you know, oh, it's a little house on the prairie. How quaint, how bucolic, how lovely. And then we start reading about how their bodies hid the sun and made darkness and their thin, large wings gleamed and glittered and Laura tried to beat them off and their claws clung to her skin and her dress and they looked at her with bulging eyes, you know, turning their heads this way and that and Mary ran screaming into the house and grasshoppers covered the ground. There was not one bare bit to step on Laura had to step on grasshoppers and they smashed squirming and slimy under her bare feet. Okay, kids, good night. <laughs> Story time's over, sweet dreams. And, you know, like this beautiful little house on the prairie moment like divulges into this horror movie. I mean, it's like creeping you out. You're, you're adults and I can see your reaction. So, like, what in the world? This is awful. What we know has happened is that the 1875 Rocky Mountain locust invasion had come. And this was just, you know, we've talked in previous weeks because all of Joel chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2 are about this plague, and so you get it. But like, we just can't imagine the hundreds of thousands of square miles that are covered in locusts. Not thousands of locusts, not even millions of locusts, not even billions, trillions of locusts, trillions of grasshoppers who are covering, um, you know, 200,000 square miles were the estimates for that Rocky Mountain um, uh, locust invasion. So this Edenic, you know, beginning on the banks of Plum Creek where everything's beautiful and, every, you know, we're going to make our fortune it all just uh, collapses in, a, in one day as that cloud comes, and then five months later, everything's gone. And they're, they're reduced to poverty, right? Uh, Pa's got nothing, and the, the family, you know, they, they, they persevere. They're, they're, they're good, hearty stock, but, uh, man, they took a beating. Verse 3 of our passage here says that the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, <clears throat> before this plague, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and, and nothing escapes them, Right? So look in that, pick up back at verse 1. You get this trumpet sound, this call in Zion, an alarm on my holy mountain. And this is the ancient air raid siren, uh, the shofar saying that something awful is coming. And 
the locust invasion is on the horizon, but, you know, the, so, the, so the people are supposed to prepare, but really, what can you do? You know, what is there to do? Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming and it's near. So it's on the way, it's not here yet. And so the natural reaction of the people in response to hearing the prophet talking about the coming day of the Lord is to go, well, can this be averted? Is there any response that's appropriate on behalf of God's people, on behalf of this warning that a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness is coming. This is not language that's unique for Joel. He's echoing plenty of other prophets who have said the same things to God's people. We're talking about Isaiah and Amos and Zephaniah. Zephaniah for, uh, chapter 1 talks about the great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. They have clouds and thick darkness. So Joel and Zephaniah, you know, are borrowing the same language from one another. Um, verse 3, you get into these metaphors that Joel employs. He talks about fire, like this plague of locusts is like a wildfire devouring before them and behind them a flame burns, um, you know, the Garden of Eden before them, desolate wilderness after them. Nothing escapes. Um, I do think it's interesting just to note that the the word that we get locust comes from a Latin phrase, locus ustis. It means burnt place. Sort of sounds like hocus pocus, locus ustis. It's a burned place. And so after one of these invasions of locusts, uh, yeah, it's Edenic beforehand. And afterward, it looks like a wildfire has just burned through, left nothing green. Everything is destroyed. Everything is brown and dead. And then another metaphor, in, in addition to the wildfire, in, in verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses they run. You know, each culture uh, has a different experience with, or different sort of perspective on what it's like to survive a locust plague. So, you know, maybe ancient cultures looked at it like a wildfire and described a locust like a burnt place. Uh, kind of interesting to note that the German word for a locust is a hay horse. And the Italian word for locust is little horse. So, you know, Joel making this comparison between the locusts and the appearance of horses or war horses, like when they run, like that gives you a sense of how people have experienced a locust invasion. Like they're just being run over. Like galloping horses, tiny little horses, but galloping horses that you cannot stop that you cannot tame, that you cannot control. And verse five, another uh, analogy is with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like a powerful army drawn up uh, for battle. Revelation does the same thing with these mixed metaphors, whether it's a wildfire or horses or an army. Um, you know, your, your eighth grade English teacher taught you that it's bad to mix your metaphors. The Bible doesn't apologize for it. Apostle John takes a page right out of Joel's prophecy in Revelation 9. When the fifth angel blew his trumpet and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the abyss. And from the abyss, from the smoke, came locusts on the earth. This is one of the, the end time judgments that God talks about in Revelation. 
In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, right out of Joel, right? And they were just like awful to look at. Crowns of gold, human faces, hair like a woman's, woman's hair, uh, their teeth like lion's teeth, a breastplate of iron, and the noise of their wings like the noise of many chariots with horses run, rushing into battle. And they've got tails with the stings of scorpions with the power to hurt people for five months. The same period as a locust plague. So all over the Bible, from the beginning, from Exodus and the plague on Egypt to Joel in the middle to Revelation at the end, locusts show up and they're a picture of God's judgment. Some commentators think Joel's talking about an army, like a literal army, the Assyrians, Babylonians, or Persians coming down, and they're like the locusts. I kind of read chapter two, and I feel like, well, no, the, the, the analogy's backwards. You know, the, the locusts are like an army, uh, and that's the comparison that Joel's making. But it doesn't really matter what instrument God uses for, for judgment. The important thing is we need to take note and go, well, how can this be averted? If this threat is coming, if destruction's on its way, is there any proper response for God's people to avert this judgment and to escape this? The day of the Lord is about destruction, whether it's from locusts or armies or whatever the case is. The point is that something of this magnitude's on the way, and the Lord is simply calling us, like He does every generation, to lament and repent. That's what we've been talking about in this, in this series in Joel. Now, lamenting and repenting, uh, if, I'm, if I'm guessing, might not be very familiar words to your ears. Some of you, yeah, you, you're tracking with me, and that's great, but it's not uncommon, really, for most people who even, you know, if you've spent your life in the church, those just feel like old-fashioned words. We don't really do that anymore, lamenting and repenting. That's what our parents or, you know, grandparents used to talk about in church. And if, and if that is your sort of association with those words, I get it. That makes sense because if you're unfamiliar with them, it's because your parents and our grandparents and so on, those words were unpopular for them because there was this whole movement to really kind of take the, the hard things in the Bible out. We want to hit the mute button on places like this where we got to talk about lamenting and repenting. And let's just look at the places in the Bible where God's nicer. <laughs> we want a nice God uh, who does nice things to nice people. That's the God we want to worship. And so it's really very, very commonplace now for people to have a conception of God that is very human in its, in its model, where you know God's sort of like a life coach. God's job is to help you succeed so that you can be the best you know, wife, the best mother, the best friend, the best student, the best employee, the best athlete, whatever. So you can have your best life now, right? That's a popular notion. And so people look at God as like a life coach. Or they look at God like a wise butler, a wise older butler, you know, that character in the stories who, who's there to anticipate your needs even before you know you need them and to meet those needs so that you're never really in any discomfort at all. And when things kind of do reach a dramatic kind of turn in the story or whatever, that wise butler, he or she's there with some sage advice, get you out of that pickle so that you're comfortable again. And that's how a lot of people view God. Or they think of him like maybe just a good therapist. 
who's there to help you deal with all those you know, hard feelings, those negative things that are going on in your life and just make you feel better. And as is often the case, you know, all of that is somebody else's fault. <laughs> that's people's view of God, right? That's, that's, that's not uncommon. Um, Richard Loveless wrote a remarkable book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And he outlines that development in people's conception of God, especially in uh, America in the 20th century. And he says that the church substituted a new God who was the projection of like grandmotherly kindness mixed with the gentleness and winsomeness of a Jesus who hardly needed to die for our sins. Many American congregations were in effect paying their ministers to protect them from the real God. <laughs> Just tell us nice stories about a nice God who does nice things to nice people. That's not Christianity. That's not the religion that Jesus came to found. But does this sound like your religion? Does this sound like the, maybe the religion you came out of? Or maybe you're still trying to figure out, I don't know what I believe, but I'm trying to figure it out and I want to get to know Jesus better. And I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. Like most people just ignore these, the, the minor prophets because we don't really know what to do with this kind of language. It's just, it's like, you know, having the kids in bed, hey, let's read The Little House on the Prairie and oh, oh, this is disturbing, you know, and let's shut the book. It's kind of like Joel's this crazy uncle, crazy uncle Joel that we don't know what to do with. We don't really want to invite them to the family, you know, celebrations, you know, imagine you've got a wedding, the bride's all, you know, putting their guest list together and and the parents are putting pressure on her. You got to invite Uncle Joel. I don't want to invite Uncle Joel. He's crazy. He says the weirdest things. Yeah, we got to invite Uncle Joel. I know, you know, he's a little out there, but he just hasn't been the same since that locust plague. And we just kind of got to bear with him. And so we make excuses for God. We try to tame his words, brush them aside. God's not your crazy Uncle Joel. He's your Heavenly Father. And like any loving parent, like the true loving parent, he's going to warn his kids about danger. He's going to commend what's healthy. He's going to tell us to stay away from the things that are dangerous to our souls. He's going to tell us to flee from what's harmful to us. Uh, Richard Loveless again says that the tension between God's holy righteousness and his compassionate mercy cannot be legitimately resolved by remodeling his uh, character into an image of pure benevolence, right? The solution, there's only one way that this contradiction can be removed, and that's through the cross of Christ, which reveals the severity of God's anger against sin and the depth of his compassion in paying its penalty through the vicarious sacrifice of his son. That's why we talk about repenting and lamenting, and lamenting and repenting, and just living that cycle out. Uh, we came up with the word last week. I don't know if you remember lamentance. <laughs> I like that. It just kind of puts them all together because they, they do go together. 
When we lament, what we're doing is we're, we're turning from you know, the, the struggle, the, the difficulty, the pain that we experience that's out there, and we turn to God. God can make a difference. It, it casts our orientation heavenward. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, you can make this right. That's a lament, and that's a good thing. Repenting is the same thing, except we're not just acknowledging the pain that's out there, the, the difficulty that's out there, the brokenness around us, but the pain and the brokenness, the sin that's in us. The ways that we're contributing to the pain. The ways that we're active in the brokenness and we're taking that to God. That's repentance. Lamenting the brokenness out there, repenting the brokenness in here. And you can't go to heaven without both. You won't look for heaven without lamenting. You won't enter heaven without repenting. And this is the response of God's people. It always has been. This is why the, the prophets are a gift to us. Isaiah chapter 45 is a great example. God says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I'm not the nice God. I'm not the life coach God. I'm not the therapist God. I'm not the, you know, the butler God. I'm the, the, the God of God, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, uh, and don't, you know, there's no other God besides me. And he's saying, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance that only in the Lord, only in the Lord, shall it be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him, all who wanted him at arm's length, who held their fists up to heaven, didn't want him in their lives. And in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Those who turn to him, those who lament and repent, shall be justified and shall glory. Did any of those words sound familiar to you? Like, did you go, oh yeah, I've heard that before somewhere. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Paul picks up on Isaiah's language about what it means to turn to the one true God, and he slaps that right onto Jesus in Philippians 2, that he did not consider equality with God something to hold on to and to put his hooks into. Instead, he gave it up and emptied himself and became obedient. You know, he, he became a man. He took on our human, human nature. He suffered on a cross, became obedient to death as a sin offering, as an atoning sacrifice to take our sins away. Um, therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's the way the gospel works. God sent Jesus to die on a cross, take our sins away, to rise again so that we might have new life with him and that everybody who laments the brokenness out there and repents of the brokenness in here would look for a solution, the solution that God provided in Christ. So that's the voice of the Lord uttering to us and speaking to us. Now, uh, let me go back to, to Joel chapter 2 for just a moment as we conclude. Look at verses 6 through 9, and you know, you got more of the description of the locusts <clears throat> that the people are in anguish, you know, at this coming judgment. They're looking at these locusts coming like warriors they charge, like soldiers they 
scale the wall. They march each on its way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in its path. They, verse 9, they climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Um, Proverbs tell us that the locusts uh, have no king, yet all of them march in rank. You know, um, I'm going to pick back up in the little house on, on, or the, on the banks of Plum Creek because the locusts do go away. After about five months, they fly away. And we get to that point near the end of the book where Paul's telling Caroline, you know, here's a strange thing. Come look. And all across the dooryard, the grasshoppers were walking shoulder to shoulder and end to end, so crowded that the ground seemed to be moving. Like, ooh, right? Not a single one hopped. Not one turned its head. As fast as they could go, they were all walking west. And Ma stood beside Paul looking, and Mary asked, Paul, what does it mean? Pa said, I, I, I don't know. Um, so the, the grasshoppers are walking, and they're, nothing's stopping them. They just keep walking. They walk up the house and through the windows, like, a, like the thief coming in through the windows. Um, and that whole day long, the grasshoppers walked west. And all the next day, they kept on walking west. And all the third day, they walked without stopping, like three full days. Can you imagine a parade? How long must that parade be to go 72 hours? And no grasshopper turned out of its way for anything. And the fourth day came, and the grasshoppers went on walking. And the sun shone hotter than ever with a terribly bright light, and it was nearly noon when Pa came from the stable shouting, Caroline, Caroline, look outdoors. The grasshoppers are flying. And Laura and Mary ran to the door, and everywhere grasshoppers were spreading their wings and rising from the ground, and more and more of them filled the air, flying higher and higher till the sunshine dimmed and darkened and went out as it had done when the grasshoppers came. When Joel's describing these warriors, you know, marching on their way, they don't swerve from their paths, they don't jostle one another, like the, the Ingalls family are baffled. They can't imagine how this is happening. In fact, at the end, after they've all flown away, Paul leaned in the doorway and said earnestly, I would like someone to tell me how they knew all at once that it was time to go and how they knew which way was west. But no one could tell them. Well, nobody except for Joel. Verses 10 and 11. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The crazy thing about a locust plague is that it's, it's just a bunch of bugs. Like, you know what to do with a bug. You squash it. But if one bug becomes a hundred, and a hundred becomes a thousand, a thousand becomes a million, and a million becomes a billion, and a billion becomes a trillion, all of a sudden, you're the bug. And you're powerless. 
helpless. We need a savior at that moment. We need deliverance from forces we can't control, things that we can't save ourselves from. Candidly, that's kind of a healthy place to be. Because that is what orients us outward, to look for salvation, to look to God, to finally hear his voice. Lord, how do we escape this? And the prophets give us this gift, showing us, call upon the Lord. The voice of God has enough authority to, to control all things, even you know trillions of grasshopper paths. God controls that. God's voice controls the wind and the rain. God's voice controls the seasons and the snowfalls, not to mention the universe. We need to heed his voice. It's foolishness not to listen. We should listen with absolute clarity of mind and willingness to hear and to resist that whisper that says, did God really say? Because if we're listening, what we're going to hear, we're going to hear all kinds of things, but of course we're in the prophets and, and we need to listen to the warnings. Warnings are real and warnings are loving. Good parents warn their kids. It's a loving thing to do as a parent, and it's a loving thing to do as a kid to listen. And so this morning, I just want to ask you, is there a warning that you need to hear? Is there something that the Holy Spirit wants to bring attention to in your life, in your heart? You know, maybe it's something you're thinking, maybe it's something you're saying, maybe it's something you're doing or not doing. And this isn't new. It's not unique to the prophets. Paul picks up on the language of God's voice warning us out of love. And he says in Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident. And I'm going to read this slowly, just so that if the shoe fits, wear it. And listen. Ask the Holy Spirit, see if there's any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Here are the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hear the voice of the Lord graciously warning us this is not consistent with the kingdom. But if we're to take to heart God's warnings because they're his voice speaking to us, that also means that we can take to heart his promises because those also come from the voice of the Lord. I know we've 
spent a lot of time in the first half of Joel chapter 2, and it's been, it's been heavy. I get it. Stay tuned, because next week, what we're going to read is in verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. If we're going to take the warnings to heart, we have to take the promises to heart. And we can take those to the bank. We can take them with us to eternity. We can swing out into eternity on those. And know we have his presence and his blessing. You know, heeding the warnings is not, it's not new. It, 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 sadly, it's not current. But our fathers and mothers for centuries have been opening up their hearts, their, 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 their lives to God's spirit to search them and to know them. Our, our very first song this morning was our, our um, prelude, uh, really put to music what is a thousand-year-old prayer. It's called the Collect for Purity. And I'm just going to end the sermon with this as the prayer, so I invite you to just pray with me as I use these words. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen.